Well, before I introduce uh, our speaker today, I just want to, on behalf of the hockey community, Sean, let you know that uh, I have a swag bag from the Oshawa Generals uh, with a Memorial Cup championship cap for you and a t-shirt. And uh, when I spoke with them, they heard you're in town. Uh, they get what a significant role you play on junior hockey teams. And so on behalf of our local team, we just want to say thank you for that. Also, Many of you, when you walked into church today, probably didn't think you'd see bucks, bears, and fish in the lobby. But you see, our guest today loves fishing and hunting. So I thought, well, I wouldn't want someone to come all the way from Saskatchewan and not feel at home. And so we made sure that he felt at home when he walked in this morning. I was introduced to Sean Brando yesterday. And uh, we had a nice evening together. But I became aware of Sean Brando when I was on my day off just over a year ago watched the memorial service for those who were tragically killed in the Humboldt Broncos accident. And I remember watching the whole service, and when Sean came up and spoke on national TV to the nation, the prime minister, there were three things that stuck in my mind about this man that I had never met until yesterday. The first thing is he was very humble. Secondly, he was brutally honest. And thirdly, he was obviously full of compassion. And so we counted an honor and a privilege to be able to have Sean Brando, the chaplain of the Humble Broncos, with us today. Can we give him a warm Oshawa welcome? Thanks, brother. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, the Oshawa stuff, it's another jersey and stuff that I won't be able to wear, like the Peterborough one I got from here. <laughs> Just to give you some context and to feed some stereotypes, out there looks like our parking lot. Um, it's uh, all the quads and everything. I'll give you a little taste of the kind of churches that I've served in. This is, uh, this is completely honest. At one point in one of my services, a lady interrupted the service to ask whose donkey was trying to get into the church. <laughs> so... This is very foreign to me, this many people and instruments and, and stuff. But what a privilege to just be a part of the family of God on a global scale. Um, we serve an incredible, incredible Lord, worthy of everything. And so it is a, a great privilege to, to be here with you guys today. Um, we're going to be in the book of Luke, if you wouldn't mind turning there with me. I've been informed that you bring your Bibles, and that's good for you. Uh, we see a lot of a lot of hockey sticks up here. I tell my congregation, you don't go to a hockey game without a hockey stick. Don't come to church without your Bible. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, make sure you got it here. In the book of Luke, in the very first chapter. Uh, about four years ago, a little over four years ago, we were going through another coaching change. And uh, in that coaching change, my, I guess my mom had been praying, Lord, send a Christian coach to Humboldt. And I told my mom, Mom, there's no such thing. There is no such thing as a... From my experience, there's no such thing as a Christian hockey coach. Or if they are, you'd wonder about their sanctification. So it's, uh, when I heard that we were getting a Christian hockey coach, I would, got my mom to pray for other things as well. <laughs> and so, Darcy Hogan showed up with his family, or not, without his family actually, for a number of months. And the moment Darcy showed up, I knew we, we hit it off well. It was much like coming here sitting with, uh, with Arnie and with uh, Kelvin, the sarcasm runs deep in this place. 
Uh, I love it. Uh, it was a, an instant connection with Darcy and I. Our sense of humor has clicked off. We had a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same loves, and then, of course, shared a, a common faith. I'll give you a little taste of Darcy's sense of humor. It's, it's not dark, it's twisted. And he, he loved to make people feel incredibly in, uncomfortable and awkward and then just walk away. It was his favorite thing in the world to do. So he would do it through a, a number of different ways. He, at one point, I guess, he was in a, in a hotel. And you know those metal napkin dispensers? Yeah, so he, he took a long time to set this one up. He stood there and stood there and stood there in front of this metal napkin dispenser at the buffet. And finally, this poor, naive young girl came up and says, can I, can I help you? Is there something wrong? And Darcy just said, your toaster's broken. <laughs> and as this poor girl tried to explain that this was not a toaster, Darcy just turned and walked away. And he would do that, you know, or someone would show up with a guitar case and he'd say, oh, you play the flute, do you? And it would just, it was weird sense of humor like that. It would just, and you'd always answer. And then he would just sort of laugh and walk away. So I caught on to this really quick, and about three weeks into him being there, he says, I got to go scout a player. Uh, do you want to hop in the truck with me and we'll go scout? Yep, sure. So I hopped in the truck, and we talked for a little bit, and he says, you know, I, I've been starting to listen to some audiobooks, and uh, it's a great way for me to put the miles on and learn a little bit. Uh, do you want to listen to one? Sure. So he put it on and pops up on the screen, uh, the author of the book. I'm like, that, that's a familiar author. It's strange that Darcy would be listening to this. And the title of the book was Get to the Point, a whole book on how to preach more simple and to the point and shorter. <laughs> and uh, I did not give him the privilege of responding to that, to said book. We listened to the whole thing. And uh, so we listened to the whole thing on the way down to this town where we went and watched this hockey player. And while we were watching hockey, I looked up my own book and we got back in the truck and said, yeah, I've been... I was listening to an awesome book too, and I plugged it in and put it up and up it popped. And how to coach better was basically the term. And uh, he didn't think it was as funny when it happened to him, but I thought it was hilarious. But Darcy and I had a, a rich relationship, a rich friendship, a close brotherhood, uh, shared a common faith and a common passion to see the young men in the humble Broncos come to know Jesus for the very first time. And uh, Darcy's faith played out in a very real way. I'll never forget after one game, Darcy lost his marbles. Just lost his marbles. The team had played horrible, and so rightfully so, and he went in and for the very first time, he said, swore at his team. And just came unglued on his team, and he came outside the dressing room, and there was his 10-year-old son. Darcy fell on his knees and just said, I'm sorry. And as we think about Father's Day, that, that picture just came to my mind of Darcy realizing his sin, realizing where he had gone, where he had gone wrong, apologizing to his son, went back in, apologized to his team, which was even stranger for the team. They've been sworn at before. They're big boys. But to hear their coach stand there and apologize for, for speaking the way he did. And it was just an amazing moment and a representation of, of who Darcy was. So the night of April 6th, uh, my family and I had just got home from a long trip. I was out speaking in different places, and as we got back from, from this trip, we got home in time that we could unpack the van, reload the van, and then drive the two hours to where the playoff game was that night, and I did not want to go. There was no way I wanted to go. And my boys convinced me, hey, let's go to this game. We need to go to the game, and 
And my wife, ah, we might as well. And so we started on the road, and uh, we left early so we could get there and have some supper and then get tickets and get to the game and stuff like that. And as we were about half an hour away from Nipawin, where the, the final destination was, we started getting phone calls and getting passed by emergency vehicles, and, and we thought, what is going on? And the first phone call was from Darcy's mom. What do you know? What do you know? Just in panic and hysteria. And, and uh, I didn't know anything. And so as we came up to the accident, I was uh, met by a fireman. We were one of the first ones there, and a fireman stopped us and said, you, you can't go up there. I told him who I was. And he just grabbed me and ran me up to the accident. And I thought, I just want to be here. I want to help. I want to pray for guys. And it was just absolute chaos absolute chaos and left my family sitting in the van as I ran up there and just walking around and seeing that was just I don't there's no other way to describe it but just the feeling of just complete lostness you don't know what to do you don't know how to help you don't know where to go or, or what's going to happen here I asked how I could help and tried to get involved and I just said I need to get to the hospital where are most of the guys going let me through get to the hospital and we went to the hospital my wife went to a church in Nipawin where they, they started to rally everybody to the church uh, where my wife could keep in touch with me and, and uh, we could have just a rallying point for parents that were coming to the game that night to have a place that they could go. And, and as I went to the hospital, we, we spent most of that night um, you know, trying to compile a list even of the players that were on the bus and, and who we found in the hospital and who wasn't there and, and so on. And uh, that night was a very, very long night. And from the very first moment we started towards Nipawin, uh, Darcy's wife, Christina, phoned and, and asked what I knew. And, and I just, I knew I needed to find Darcy and I couldn't find him anywhere. The whole night, I just wandered around the hospital, checking on guys, praying, and, and just feeling so lost. And I couldn't find Darcy anywhere. And about 10.30 that night, I had to realize that if he's not here, he's gone. And I wrestled that night. I didn't sleep at all. I wrestled and I wrestled and I wrestled. And I shared it at the vigil that, that two, two people that night sent me passages of Scripture. Now, I know there's other Christians that know me, but only two of them sent me Scripture. And I'm not, not knocking everybody else, but I think God needed to speak to me by those two people. And uh, I was reminded, uh, you know, of, of the Good Shepherd. And I was reminded that God walks close to the brokenhearted. And what a good reminder that this is not lost on God. God knows, He understands, He saw, and I don't understand everything, but I know God who does not change, who is forever good in His character, and who is forever sovereign, has to know what He's doing. Now, that doesn't mean I had a complete trust in that yet. And so, the matter of weeks, I went and did seven funerals, um, leading up to Darcy's um, almost eight days later and doing Darcy's funeral, planning it with his wife, she picked, I think it was seven or eight worship songs. And I just said to Christina, this is way too much singing. This is way too much singing. And she says, nope, it stays in. And I was more scared of Christina than Darcy was. So I said, okay. And uh, I remember sitting on the stage all by myself. Then they had this little worship band there and they were playing away. And the Chris Tomlin song, I Will Rise, came on, and, uh, and we were singing along, and all of a sudden it gets to the refrain, and it says this, and I hear the voice of many angels say, worthy is the Lamb. Boy, 
I couldn't sing it. Is he worthy? Is he worthy to be praised even in something like this? And I had to sit and I thought as they sang through the verses again and it was coming back to the refrain. And I remember just in my heart thinking, I need to say it. I need to at least say it. Worthy is the Lamb. And as I said it, I started to sing it. And as I started to sing it, I started to express it. And it started to not just become a mantra. Don't take this the wrong way. But I started to come to the realization that he is worthy. And so in the midst of this, a God, and I said it this morning at the breakfast, one of the questions I wrestled with through this whole thing, can I still trust a God who keeps secrets from me? Who may not tell me why. I may not understand all the details of what's going on, but can I still trust him? Has he revealed enough of himself that I can fully confidently say he is worthy? He is worthy. And I tell you, and this is my testimony to you today, that he is. Let's go to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. Some of you um, maybe would just pass right over as you're reading and you get to the introduction and just think, oh, let's get to the meat. Or you get to you know, you, you go through genealogies and different things like that, and you're just like, ah, why is it in there? Or you read a Bible reading plan, you yay, free day, and you, you move on. Um, but let's read the first four, five, yeah, four verses of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative or a collection of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things very closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. I read that a couple weeks after the accident, and I thought, this is where I got to camp. I got to camp in the Gospels here for a little while. I want to have the exact reason why Luke wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke, why he wrote it, so that he could say to Theophilus, I want you to be super confident of what you believe. All those things that you heard or maybe heard rumors, I want you to confidently understand it. And he wanted to present it in such a way. Luke just says, I did my research, I talked to the right people, I've compiled it all in an orderly way. This is a doctor speaking, so don't think he is super scatterbrained. He knows how to compile this stuff. Likely Theophilus is a lawyer, so he's putting it together for a very important person. And so he's done his research, he's done his thought, and he puts it together so that Theophilus could take confidence in what he's heard about Jesus. Don't you like that? Now here's an interesting part. Maybe you never thought about, Luke was not a disciple. Luke did not walk with Jesus. So how did he get his information? And I want to venture to say to you today that he's, he spent most of his time talking to people that did walk with Jesus and that had interactions with Jesus and who saw and experienced and witnessed, not just from a distance, but personally and firsthand, the love of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, the deliverance of Jesus, the power and the compassion of Jesus, the grace that he bestowed, and yet the firmness with people. And all of those things we're told in, in relationship to Luke, and as Luke puts all these stories together, he writes all the things that he writes to bring confidence to Theophilus and to the rest of the readers. Aren't you glad this is in here? So, I'm going to venture to say one of these people 
not in the Gospel of Luke. This last week I was reading in the book of Mark, and this is, this is my, that was just the introduction. You're in for, I hope you brought a bag lunch. <laughs> in the book of Mark, chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a chunk. Um, it's a powerful, powerful story of possibly one of those people that Luke talked to. Possibly. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, the, um, immediately they, there met him out of, the, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit or a demon. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with, with uh, shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart and broke the, the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from far, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you um, by God, don't torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he, be and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of, out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them instead. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the, the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it, um, seen it described it to them, um, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, please, just get out of here, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed uh, begged him that he would be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had had such great mercy on you. And I think we're going to leave it there. What a strange thing Jesus would tell him at the end. No, you can't follow me. I want you to stay here and tell everybody around you how much God's done for you. I like that. It's a testimony. This is what we call them. It's my story, and this, this guy's story is a phenomenal one. As you look at it, we may think, well, that's a demon-possessed guy way over there, and it's weird and scary, and let's not talk about that. Let's move on to puppies and rainbows and unicorns. Let's do something different. No. Tough. Uh, Mark chapter 5 is giving us a picture of the type of people that Jesus went to. Is this the type of person that you would generally go to their side of the street to find? No. And this guy has alienated himself and has been alienated, has under 
certainly spiritual attack here, and I want to give you a little insight into what this spiritual attack looks like, because maybe you have been so duped and your mind has been so darkened you don't realize what's going on in your life, because I'm not flopping on the floor, because I'm not bound up, because I'm not any of that stuff. I promise you that that is not the be-all and end-all. Satan is much more subtle than that. Now, I want you to notice something about this guy. They tried to bind him up. Here's a guy living all by himself. Where is he living? Your church is bigger, but we're still going to have interaction. Tough. Yell it out. Where is he living? Among the tombs. He's living among the dead people. One of the first things I realized when I started the chaplaincy ministry is that I am dealing with not people who are alive, but who are dead and continuing to die. Their lives are just wasting away. Any person without Christ is that way. And so they, they, we go after things that we think are going to make us happy, they're going to fill us up, that are going to empower us, embolden us, and we, we think that if I just have this, maybe that'll bring me some life. But there's no life. And he spends his whole time wandering around in the, in the tombs. Now, something to be said here is we don't know where this guy came from. But very likely he has brothers, sisters, a mom and a dad who haven't been able to see him for years, years and years and years. Their brother, their friend, their son has got to a point in his life where he has, uh, in his life, allowed so many things to influence his life that it has driven a wedge between that family relationship. They can't be around each other. That, that damage is done. We don't see mom and dad trying to spend time with him. They're actually trying to constrain him, likely from hurting himself and other people. How does the spiritual impact of Satan show up? It shows up in wanting to destroy. Jesus makes that claim. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And Jesus says, but I came so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. Now, the thief is doing a wonderful job here trying to drive this guy deeper and deeper away from his family, away from his relationships, away from any form of sanity, and everything that is happening in his life is being done, and even he is trying to harm himself over and over again, wandering around, he's not sleeping at night, wandering around all night like crying out, making weird noises, doing all these different things, and sin does those very same things in our life. It leaves us sleepless. It drives us insane. We're always worried about getting caught. We're always worried about this duplicit life. We're wanting that relationship back, but we're not sure how to get it. And even though we can break free of the shackles that people put on us, even though we might have freedom to do whatever we want to do, we're still just as enslaved as we ever were. Do you notice that? He's not bound up in chains. He can break them. That's who he is. And that's the power that he has. And you may think you have all the freedom in the world... You may have all the privilege in the world, but you're just as bound up and oppressed as this guy is. What hope is there? And so Jesus comes along and, and starts talking to this man, and there's a powerful verse in there. What, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Do you see that? I don't know how many times I talk to people, and they'll, they'll actually say very similar things. I don't really have anything to do with God. don't really care. I've never, never thought about it. Don't give it any thought. That's fine. What does Jesus have to do with me? Who cares? And immediately there's conflict. Maybe this is where you're at. Maybe this conflict is so strong that you don't even want to come into the doors of a church. 
You don't want to be around Christian people because you know there's something going on, the tension there between the spiritual world that is trying to destroy me, and you realize that this tension is going to mean maybe some pain. And this man cries out that I won't, you know, I'm thinking he wants to be delivered, but then the demons are crying out, don't torment us, don't do this, and then they have this weird story with the pigs. But in a, in a spiritual conflict, when we come face to face with Jesus, we're actually faced with the reality of a choice. That's why the cross is so offensive to people, because it realizes that we have a choice to make. Will we entrust our lives to Jesus, or will we continue going the way that we're going? And so it's at that turning point that the turmoil doesn't get easier, it gets harder. And it's right when we come to the cusp of coming face to face with the truths of Jesus that you're likely going to cry out and you're going to make things that are um, irrelevant, you're going to write God off and say, God, you let this happen, how dare you? I'm just going to turn my back and I'm going to run away from God forever. What right does Jesus have to do with me? Or what does Jesus or God have to do with me? Nothing. And a lot of people are going to do other things to try to do away with God. We're going to avoid situations that might make us think about spiritual things, that might make us wrestle with the truth, might make us think even. We don't want to think about that. We want to be in control of our life. And we know that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean a difference and it's going to mean a change. That's scary. And it's at that turning point that Jesus intercedes and he delivers this man. And I love what's said here after this man is delivered. He's sitting with Jesus, all the crowds are coming back, and it says this. He was sitting there fully clothed, thankfully, makes the conversations less weird. And then secondly, he was thinking clearly. Did you see that? You know, Romans 1 talks about that, that our spiritual minds get darkened by sin. We justify it. We make excuses about it. We think, oh, I have, I have the right to, to act this way. Or I'm so tired, I'm just, you know, whatever. Or we make other excuses. We, maybe we're victims. This is the way I was born, or this is the way I was treated as a kid, or this is what I went through. This is the disease that I had to suffer with. This is all the things, and all we can think about is me. Just me. My circumstances. And so when Jesus delivers this man, it says that he starts to think clearly and understand clearly. And I think the deliverance here is so great in what he tells, this, Jesus tells this man as he's leaving. Jesus is getting back into the boat and this man's like, I just want to be with you. You delivered me. I want to be with this person that gave me life. And Jesus says, you are free. You are free. You've been set free. And so I want you to go and tell all your friends about that. And then look at the last part of that verse and tell me what else he's supposed to say. The last part of that verse says something remarkable. What is another part of his testimony supposed to be? Verse 19. How he had mercy. You know, this is a commonly misunderstood thing about Christians. People think that, well, you know, especially an outsider is going to look at a a Christian person says, well, that person went to church their whole time. You know, they grew up, they're used to this crazy singing stuff, and they're used to all this weird stuff. And, you know, that's for them, not for me. And I want you to understand that mercy is for all of us. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. None of us. And so all of us have this testimony to bear of God's mercy, how gracious He's been to us, undeserving. And that is the mercy that I 
I really want to display to our hockey players. One of the greatest, most obvious tools and the things that we talk about in hockey is grace. Everything in their life is earned. You ever thought about that? They earn their ice time, they earn a spot on the team, they have worked and worked and worked, and if they get cut, they take it personally because they didn't put the work in. They have to earn everything. So when you come face to face with grace, it's a foreign concept in hockey. When you're loved unconditionally, whether you're playing good or not playing good. Some of those guys have even had dads that their love was conditional because of how good the, the kid played or not played. And so they don't understand grace. And it was mercy that this man was supposed to remark about. So we took Luke, we took this guy, let's go to Luke part two, to the very beginning of the book of Acts. Very beginning of the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Luke, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And Acts, I'm going to say to you, I, I believe is part two of the book of Luke. Um, and I will just read the very first verse and point something out to all of us. In my very first book, O Theophilus, I have um, dealt with all that Jesus, what? Began to do and to teach. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Remember how Luke started? I wrote all these things that you could be convinced, confident of this. And so then he starts the next book after Jesus has been uh, raised to life. We're going to see in the book of Acts that he spends 40 days with his disciples. But, but here he says, I'm going to write a second book about all that Jesus began to do and teach in the previous book, which implies that this book is about all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. Don't you like that? Because Jesus is still working today. Jesus is still working in the lives of young men in the hockey world. Jesus is still working in the lives in this community. Jesus is maybe bringing you into a place where you can come face to face with the person of Jesus who wants to set you free from what you're bound up in, from the things that are destroying your relationships with other people, from the things that are putting you sitting at a bar with every other dead person, trying to fill, find life somehow. And he wants to bring you to a relationship with him, and he says, I write this to you, but all the things that Jesus began to do, now let's look at how Jesus continues to work. And the book of Acts is all about the church. How does Jesus continue to move and to teach and to act? The church. He uses people like you see around you. He's going to use your brothers, your sisters in Christ. He's going to use people like your neighbors to love you, to invite you to stuff, to care for you, to show grace that you've maybe never experienced before in a natural relationship. We love because we were loved first. We have mercy because we've been shown mercy. We forgive because we were forgiven first. And this confidence that I start to see rallies around people who bear testimony to the same confidence that I'm beginning to have. Can I trust a God who may keep secrets from me? Yeah. Why? Because I know and I've come to put faith in the revelation of who Jesus is. I have seen God's proven track record in the lives of other people, my brothers and sisters that, that I'm surrounded by, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God is patient, that God is merciful, and God is sovereign. We may not always know why things happen. That answer may come 20 years down the road. That answer may come in eternity. But God is good. 
just as we close, I want to point out how the book of Acts starts and the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts starts with this statement that Jesus begins to do and to teach and continues to do and to teach, and he does that by being for 40 days surrounded with his disciples. They're all gathered around and says that he is explaining the kingdom of God to them and telling them all about this stuff and says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to work through you, and you're going to do incredible things for me. Then if you go to the very end of the book of Acts, look at what happens. We see Jesus surrounded by all of his disciples. Then we have one disciple, a guy named, not a disciple, an apostle named Paul. And Paul has been traveling all over the world telling about how great Jesus is and fully confident. God rescued Paul from a life, honestly, of religious slavery. God snatched him out of this really religious world and gave him a relationship with the Savior, Jesus, and showed him mercy, instead of killing Paul, God raised Paul up to do an incredible work. And right at the end of the book of Acts, what do we see Paul doing? He's surrounded by a whole bunch of other brothers, sisters, friends, and he's explaining the kingdom of God, and they're talking about what Jesus is doing. Why is the church so important? Because it's a place that we gather around the goodness of God revealed in his word, so that we can be completely confident of the God that we serve. That builds and establishes our faith. Remember what we said in some of these songs. Some of these songs are rich with that truth. Good, good father, for instance. Is he good? Is he worthy to be worshipped? Is he worthy to be praised? How do you know? Because as you sit with brothers and sisters and marvel over the things that are told about Jesus, we have more than enough information that God is sovereign that God is consistently good, God is consistently patient with us and merciful with us. And so we gather together on Sunday mornings, we have small groups, we meet in each other's homes, gathering people around us to sit around the Word of God, to build up our faith, to build confidence, and then to bring other people into that relationship that we have by testimony of the mercy and the goodness of God in our lives. That's your job, that's my job. Amen? God is good. Can we pray? If there's some of you that do not know Jesus, that are just longing to be free, then I urge you to come up with last songs playing. There'll be pastors up here. If you are looking for prayer, or for counsel, the pastors are here for that too. Um, I just want to pray for this church. God, you've called us to be light. And I just thank you that you have called us to an incredible task to represent you well. And we don't always do it well. I pray that we would talk about you confidently, not from heady knowledge that is a long ways off, but from personal interaction with a good and gracious God. Father, I thank you that Jesus did not stay dead. It gives me confidence that all these things that I struggle with, the loss that we face, the injustices that we see on this earth, all the things that seem to be so out of control, we know that it's not done. We know that you're coming back. You will come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords to bring justice and judgment and also reward for those who are faithful. Father, you are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.